Welcome back to the Clayton Castle podcast. I'm so excited to interview this next guest. He is a longtime media reporter for the Cincinnati Inquirer, formerly of the Cincinnati Inquirer. He is now with WVXU 91.7 and WVXU.org. I am glad and excited to welcome my next guest, John Kieswetter. John, thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks for the invite. So I want to get you on because I have followed your work for a very long time. Obviously, I'm someone who comes from the media business. Uh, we read your work in the media business and out of the business. We like to know who's coming and who's going and why who, why they're coming and why they're going. And plus learning a lot about the media business, not just on the national level, but more importantly, the local level, because this is where the locals get affected. And, you know, these are people in our community. So um, let's get right into it. I want to start at the very beginning of Keys. I, I learned just well, a couple of days ago that you're actually from Middletown, Ohio, where I currently live. So what was Keys in Middletown like growing up? I uh, grew up uh, on Orchard Street, a block away from where the old hospital was up on the hill. Um, went to St. Mary's grade school that no longer exists there on Central Avenue. It's now the senior center. Um, went to Fenwick High School and uh, went to OU to IU to study journalism. And my summers back home, I would work for the Middletown Journal, which is now part of the, the journal news that covers both Middletown and Hamilton and all of Butler County. Graduated from, um, from OU in 1975 and got a summer internship with the Cincinnati Inquirer, uh, 13 weeks uh, as a news reporter and managed to parlay that 13 weeks into 40 years. Wow. <laughs> so what, one, what drove you to want to go into journalism? I don't know. I, I was, um, I was encouraged by some teachers back at St. Mary's grade school, seventh and eighth grade that I could write. And they, they, they um, encouraged me to write. And um, so that's what I, I, I took their word for it, that I had a talent for it and uh, wrote some, you know, at the high school newspaper back then, the Middletown Journal uh, let students produce and fill a page of the Sunday paper with uh, feature stories about their schools or interesting people. And uh, I just always kind of knew I was going to be a writer of some sort, although I kind of figured uh, when I was editor of the, the Post, the student paper at OU, that I was going to be like a real serious newsman or managing editor of the Chicago Trib of the New York Times. And um, at the Enquirer, I was in local news for a while, and then I was switched to uh, the feature section when we had a daily feature section called the Tempo section. Uh, when I was Tempo editor, it had been the paper about 10 years, my TV critic quit. And I thought, boy, that sounds like an awful lot of fun. Um, and so I uh, um, made an offer, made an application to the editor of the paper that I stepped out of management and I stepped down as an editor of one of the, of the section and uh, go back to writing. And uh, I didn't regret it for a day. I spent 30 years as TV, radio, um, media columnist. And I, I, as you said, open, opening up, I, I kind of viewed it as, as to explain the, what, what's happening on the TV uh, stations you're watching or the radio stations you're listening what's happening and why it's happening and who these people are uh, because we spend so much time 
watching TV or at that point listening to the radio or with these people who deliver the news or host the music. And um, I I've, I've thought, okay, I could write about them and, and, and find, you know, just do interesting human interest stories, trend stories, personality stories, news stories, and, uh, and have found that, that there was an appetite for it. There, there always has been. And even when the Enquirer ended the TV beat in 2014, there was still an appetite for it. And I've been blessed to be able to continue to report and do what I love for Cincinnati Public Radio and WVXU. Man, you talk about the tempo section at the Cincinnati Enquirer. That brings me back. That's the Enquirer from you know my childhood and even longer before way before I was even born. I remember the tempo section, the met the metro section. I mean, man. Um, so you said a little bit about how much fun you've had being a media reporter, a TV critic, a person who covers television, radio. What has been your favorite part about being a media reporter, blogger, writer? Well, a, cu- a couple of things. One is, is that um, um, back in the heyday, back when the newspapers were really big newspapers, I probably made three dozen trips to Los Angeles to go watch shows being made, to, to go what was called to what was called the press tour in uh, summer and in winter to look at the, the new shows, interview executives, make set visits, you know, be there for a taping of, 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 I was there for friends, for Seinfeld, for a night court, for um, uh, home improvement, a bunch of different shows. But, but as I wrote in my new book, to me, the most fun trip, even though I could do all those things, which were pretty cool to me, the most fun trip was to go to Riverfront stadium and sit in the back of the radio booth of and watch Marty and Joe call a ball game and just watch these two great fans uh, that, that everybody could relate to, that so many people listen to, uh, just watch them have fun calling a game, you know, lightly uh, making fun of each other, uh, having plenty of laughs when between the innings during the commercials. And um, it, it was, it, to me, that was most fascinating. And, and out of that grew uh, the, the book I did about Joe Nuxhall. How much of that was developed by your love for the Reds? Because you're from Middletown. Anyone who's from Cincinnati or the greater Cincinnati area, you are born and raised on the Reds. How much did that, that trip to Riverfront Stadium, that, be, that being a favorite part of your job, how much of that was developed by the love of your Reds? Well, I, I, I got a love of baseball from my dad. Um, and... Um, and, and I was, you know, had, had, was just born at the right time. And I was eight years old in 1961 when the Reds, uh, won the pennant and went to the world series against the Yankees. Um, before then they weren't all that good. And there were some stretches there in the late sixties. Then when they became, when the seeds of the big red machine with, you know, when Rose came up and then Tommy Helms and then. Uh, Tony Perez and Johnny Bench and uh, and others. Um, so that was one, one thing. Uh, another thing is is my favorite. I, I'm left-handed, and my favorite player as a kid was a pitcher who came up in 1962 and went five and zero for the Reds, and his name was Joe Nuxall. And I'm left-handed. He's left-handed. He's from Hamilton. I'm from Middletown. We're both from the same county, and uh, he became my favorite player. 
And um, I thought he was just some young stud pitcher who came up through the minor leagues. And my dad sat me down and said, no, no, Joe Knox saw first pitch when he was 15 years old in 1944 and then spent seven long years in the minors before he came back with the Reds. And then in the mid fifties was an all-star in 55 and in 56 led the national league with shutouts with five in 1955 and was a heck of a player and hit hard times and came back to the Reds in, in 1962 and then uh, pitched until spring training of 67 and became a radio broadcaster. And from that point on, uh, Joe Nuxall was was part of the soundtrack of my summer, uh, along with the different Reds broadcasters, uh, Al Michaels, Jim McIntyre, but particularly when Marty came along in 1974. And for 31 years, I mean, it, it was and maybe it's even still so that, that you pull up at a stoplight and your windows are down in your car and the car next door also has a Reds game on or you could walk down the street at, in the evening and hear the Reds game on and somebody working in their garage or somebody sitting on a patio having a beer or something. Um, this has just a, been a really big radio market, still is. And um, and Joe Nuxall and Marty Brenneman, particularly Joe, was a big part of that for me. I do want to – I'll go – I want to um, revisit the, your book later. Uh, okay. I do want to go back to your media career real quick. Okay. I read a story a few years ago. Again, I've been following your work for a while. Um, one of my favorite media personalities, per se, is David Letterman. Mm-hmm. And I read a story about you meeting David Letterman. I think it was in the mid to late 90s or so. 1997, uh, yes. Can you talk a little bit about meeting David Letterman? David Letterman was kind of one of those um, was one of the people that I wanted to interview from the first day I got on the beat in 1985. There, there was a, a, a book about Letterman, an unauthorized bio in the late 80s that said he he liked to listen to Rich King, who was a humorist DJ on Cincinnati radio. And then later. um Others had said that, you know, much of what he much of his shtick on TV was patterned after Paul Dixon, who was a popular Channel 5 uh, talk host, crazy kind of animated talk host um, in um, on Channel 5 in the mornings. And so uh, he was always on my list of somebody I wanted to meet and interview and and had interviewed his producer, Bob Morton and Peter LaSalle and some other people, even his mother. And in 1997, there was a man in, in northern Kentucky who would, back when Dave had his mailbag, uh, would send tons and tons of letters. And they'd usually use one about once a month. And he and his wife went up on his birthday uh, as their big birthday gift. He was going to go to the Letterman Show. And, and the writers welcomed him when he told them he was coming up. So, my, uh, so the inquiry sent me up to, to shadow him. And uh, I was able to um, meet Letterman after the show taping. It was a Thursday night, so he taped actually taped two shows. And after the second show, um, Jerry Scales and his wife, that's a guy from Covington, we were sent up stairs to the um, to the offices and we uh, got into Letterman's office and uh, and I was able to meet him and and uh, Jerry had arranged to give him a a Reds jersey that said number 20 on it because Letterman had been on TV 20 years. And then Letterman kind of started talking. 
Well, I'm sorry for the long story. J Jerry said, uh, you know, maybe you can make the home office Covington, Kentucky. And then Letterman kind of went on this riff. And, well, we've had other cities that wanted to do it, this city, another city. So I handed him a, a, a picture postcard of, of, of uh, Paul Dixon. And I said, here's something you could only get in Cincinnati, Ohio. You couldn't get it in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, or all the other cities he'd mentioned. And he looked at it and he said, wow, Paul Dixon. And he immediately summoned his secretary into the room and gave it to her and the envelope that it was in um, because he didn't want to lose it. He didn't want it lost on all this other stuff. And within a week, he had sent a handwritten note to uh, Paul Dixon's widow. And thank, but, but he began riffing about how he, he would come home from uh, work. He was a weatherman on Channel 13 in Indianapolis, and he'd get home and he'd turn on Dixon. And he said, Dixon did the same stupid show every day. You know, he'd th throw a rubber chicken, one around the big salami, this and that and other thing. And he would tell people that, that they're just watching this dumb show, very self-deprecating. And he said, someday that's what I want to do. And basically what he did uh, in late night for many years was pattern many of the elements off of Dixon. So that that was, I, I thought, okay, I, I could die happy. I got, not only had I heard for years that Letterman might've patterned himself off of Dixon, but I met Letterman and he told me that himself. Yeah. And we uh, did a story uh, from New York. Um, wow. It was, it was fun to do. What I really loved about Letterman was, again, I was a huge Letterman fan. I, from, I don't remember, I used to have a very, my grand, my great grandmother who lived in Middletown, uh, she, when she passed away in, I don't know, the mid 2000s, she had like a, a small little box, black and white TV that I had in my TV, in my, in my bedroom. And for some reason I would just turn on Letterman at night. I'm like, 13 years old, maybe. <laughs> and I started watching Letterman and, you know, loved him from, from then on. And then when I got older, I'd go back and watch old episodes of Letterman, old, old skits. But what I really loved about Letterman was yes, he was a great comedian, but, and Senator Al Franken said this in one of Letterman's last episodes was he's also a great broadcaster. He understands his time slot. He understands the kind of the power that he has having that role on television at that time of night. Um, and he used it, he used it in so many different ways. And he was a great interviewer. I love his new show. Um, my next guest needs no introduction because that's, that was his strong suit was interviewing people and learning more about people. It, what is your assessment on um, Letterman as a broadcaster, as opposed to Letterman as a comedian? I, I, I agree completely um, that he, uh, he, he, yes, he was a great interviewer. He, he is a great interviewer because he listened and he wasn't committed to the notes that he had in front of him of, of where the producers had said he should do the interview. Uh, he was so spontaneous. He wasn't afraid to be, um, I won't say confrontational when thinking about Cher or, or a Madonna or something, but he, he was not afraid to be cantankerous at times. Uh, he had some very inventive comedy bits. Um, the monkey cam was was one that I think of. Um, the uh, Alka Seltzer suit and the Velcro wall, um, were and, and all the stuff he did with the Hello Deli next door. Mm -hmm. um, some of that was was 
reminiscent of, of a comedian named Steve Allen back in the 50s, the first host of The Tonight Show. But it, 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 it is another side. It, believe me, of all the people that, that I knew who were Letterman fans, and then there were Leto, Leto fans, and there were people who thought uh, you couldn't be both. But actually, I, I, and I was one of the few people who was. Uh, I'd liked Letterman's show. I liked the guests he got. They were un, sometimes unusual, um, very insightful interviews. And on the other hand, if you just wanted comedy, uh, uh, Leno's monologue, which sometimes went 11 or 12 minutes a night, was very good. And I, you know, I didn't get into the, the personal stuff between the, or the falling out they might have had, but I, I could have been a fan of both. But and the other thing, Letterman was a broadcaster, but he also was a uh, what made him a broadcaster also was a sense of history. Uh, you know, when Dwight Yoakam would come through, he'd talk about get Yoakam to talk about his uh, his, you know, passing through Cincinnati a lot because he lived in Kentucky. You know, when he had. Uh, George Clooney on about Monuments Men. Um, and at the end of Monuments Men, his dad, Nick, plays George's dad. And George's dad and mom were in the green room and they cut to the green room a couple of times and, and uh, you know, got Nick some, some time on the show. Um, so it, it, you know, he, was, he was very special. And it, it pained me, as well as a lot of Letterman fans, was after the show ended, and like a week later, when they literally ripped out that set behind them that had the, the bridge and and the cityscape. Oh, that wasn't even that wasn't a week. That was the next day. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, because I told you I was there for two shows. Mm -hmm. I was there for the first show upstairs, and then we had time to. There was like an hour between the first show and the second show, and the CBS rep that we were with um, took us down to the Ed Sullivan Theater when it was empty between the shows and we, you know, walked through the audience and we actually walked up on stage and the guy said, you want to sit behind his desk? I said, no, I, I didn't want to do that. You know, I wasn't, but I could peek over back to see that cityscape set behind him that he'd throw the, the, the blue pencil. note cards into. And then to think that it was uh, ripped out and it wasn't preserved in a museum of broadcasting somewhere was, was painful. Yeah. I know. Uh, I believe a lot of his, he had some stuff go to Ball State, I believe, um, after he left the show. I I don't know exactly why. I thought maybe his desk went up there. There are a couple of things, obviously, that went up to Ball State. But, no, I just wanted to get your insight on Letterman because I know you have a history with him. And I, I was lucky enough to see an episode as well um, in 2013. I remember it was the the day the Pope was selected, the new um, the new Pope, and he did the Gaucho Pope bit. And um, it was it was just hilarious. But so thank you for that insight. Now, turning the sites to local media, if you had to pick a dream team of local media, so two anchors, a weatherman and a sports person out of Cincinnati personalities, past and, and or present, what would be your dream news team? Yes, the first thing I'd say, I'd, I'd probably have um, Tim Hedrick do weather. Um, I'd have John Popovich do sports always only because he was such a wonderful storyteller. Uh, Denny Jansen could break the news from sometimes. And, and there was lots of other people that have come and gone, but those are the two. Boy, if I got to pick a, a male, female anchor. Wow. Uh, I'd probably take uh, Clyde Gray as my anchor. 
and my co-anchor, boy, there's a, an awful lot of women that that would be co-anchors that uh, that could fit that job. Uh, Carol Williams, Cami Durking, uh, Norma Rashid, just for the friendliness factor. As um, boy, I, I don't know if I could name one. And then uh, then I'd have Al Shadokati do a spotlight report, as he always did on his newscast. I, I, because they were always insightful and, and nice three-minute newsy feature most of the time, not all the time, but but most of the time. And um, I, I think I'd pick that over having a Jerry Springer commentary, although when Jerry was on top of his game here in the late 80s, uh, you know, everybody tuned in to see what he was going to say on his, on his um, commentary that night. You know, you talk a lot. You just talked a lot about the great history of broadcasting here in town. You know, I don't I don't know if you've ever written a book on that. My dream is to write a book on just like the history of high quality journalism here in Cincinnati, because you think about a lot of the news town. We've had Jerry Springer come through this town, Al Shadokati, Nick Clooney, a lot of these big newsmen noteworthy newsmen, award-winning newsmen who've come through this, this, you know, Midwestern town, the, and not New York, not LA, but here in Cincinnati, how would you, what do you think about the quality of journalism that Cincinnati has seen over the years? Well, we're, we're very blessed. And part of it was because um, for, for a good long while, all three stations were owned by companies based here. Taft owned 12, Scripps still owns nine, Five was uh, multimedia, um, but that was, you know, that was Walter Bartlett based here, um, Dudley Taft and, and, and the Scripps family. And so they just not only wanted to, you know, they, they not only wanted to have a good news operation, they wanted to be number one. And, and, and yeah, we're like market 32 or something, but I could probably make a very long list of people who came here at some point in their career and probably envisioned it as they signed that first two or three year contract. And then maybe I'm going to move on to the, to a next market and stayed here and had very long, you know, very long um, uh, careers that really contributed to journalism in this city. Um, another element is the I team, you know, back in the, I guess, late, I'm trying to think, it had to be the late eighties. Cause really the, the first big thing that Pat Menarsen and the I team did on channel nine was that Donald Harvey, a serial murders at, at Drake hospital. And there had been, it was really, um, Pat Menarsen who, who looked at, began looking at this pattern of death at, at, and, and realized that it probably the work of a serial killer. And it was their big investigative special. I think it was just a half hour. Cause I remember I, I was called by channel nine and I said, Hey, tomorrow night, we're going to take the, the six o'clock half hour. And we're going to do a half hour, just all about this guy, Donald Harvey. And I said, who? And they said, Donald Harvey. They said, well, he was this guy that was arrested about three months ago, four months ago for um, uh, in charge with a, a mercy killing at, at, at Drake hospital and Drake employees had come to Menarsen and had put together the shift that Donald Harvey was working on 
and the mysterious deaths of like a dozen patients. And so Channel 9 did the special and like the probably the very next day, there was a grand jury called and it was basically, you know, the I, the beginnings of the I-team, but laid out the roadmap to the prosecutor on uh, on nailing Donald Harvey. And by, I'm trying to think, think of the time, I think the show ran about on the 15th of June and by, you know, and within two months, he had pleaded guilty to 40 murders or about 40 murders at Drake Hospital. Wow. So you know, we, we've had some great journalism in this city, uh, a lot of great print journalism too, but but uh, we've had great broadcast journalism. I, I, I think I'm fuzzy on this. I wasn't sure we're getting into this territory, but one of the first Peabody's by a radio station was one by WLW back in the early 40s. So, wow. Um, you know, it, it just had this great broadcasting tradition here going back to, uh, you know, Pal Crosley and starting WLW in 1922 and then having the 500,000 watts, the only commercial 500,000 watt station in the United States from 34 to 39. Um, Crosley was doing TV experiments in the late 30s and then shut it down for the war and then came back and and then with television in the early late 40s early 50s uh channel 5 wwt was so dominant that and and promoted their shows on color particularly ruth lyons and the reds and midwestern hayride that by 1960 rca victor had had dubbed cincinnati color town usa because there was more color sets in this market per capita than any other town uh, so, it, it, yeah, there's just a, a wonderfully rich. Plus, we had the first all Elvis radio station, too. <laughs> That's very true. So, you know, I'm someone who I've had my journalism career spans the last seven years since I graduated from North Kentucky University. But I've done print, I've done radio and I've done television. I've done all three. What is your favorite out of those three? Which one is your favorite to cover or to write about? Wow, I, I I I don't think of it that way. Um, I guess I think about um, just telling great stories. And and when I was in print, I try to tell great stories with great photos. When I was at at uh, WVXU to be able to do the story, but then to bring them in the studio and and you can actually hear them tell their story. Um, and, and the type of story that I was most happy to do was to kind of get behind the scenes of and and um, like on the anniversary of of the first television broadcasts of the early days of television and and to dig up some really neat old pictures and talk to some of the people who were making television back in 1948 late 47 when when uh, WLWT came on the air as an experimental station and to talk about what it was like back then in the first days of television or to spend a day with um, with uh, I mentioned Clyde Gray I spent a day with Jerry Springer spent a day with um, um, I'm trying to think that there was a guy at Channel 9 who was the police reporter that was all over the place in the morning and uh, and and uh, breaking news reporter extraordinaire. And I, I hang out with him and then write a story and to, to explain, to introduce him to people who may not know him 
and the people who did watch him to learn more about him and, and, and tell more about him. Why is it important that people know what's going on um, behind the scenes here in town at these stations? Why is it important to know what's going on, going on behind the scenes with the people that they see on TV and out in the community? I just think it's, you know, that, that the, that the stations promote their personalities and, and, and as, as, you know, wanting to make them part of your life. I mean, even back in the, this really dates me, but when Nick Clooney was, was anchorman at channel 12, one of their promotional campaign was let a friend break the news, which was their, their way of trying to say that Nick Clooney was much more warm and friendly than Al Shadokati, who was just kind of this rat-a-tat-tat news, 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 headlines, headlines, headlines. Um, But I thought, you know, as much as that they, um, they promote their people that way and they want you to uh, them to tune in radio or TV and listen to them or watch them, but they really don't really tell you much about them as a person. And uh, sometimes they, they do this big promotional campaign and then, then they disappear or they're not there anymore or they're, they end up getting moved to the morning shift or the weekend shift or um, so I, I thought it was important to explain who these people are, what, what they do and how the business operates so that um, people who are watching or listening would not only know a bit more about those people, but also would understand a bit about how the, the pressures of commercial t- TV. Uh, people used to ask me, there was a time that, that after Jerry Springer left, that Channel 5 probably went through uh, 10 different anchor teams. And there was a time before Jeff and Jen in the morning that uh, Q102 went through like 10 different morning teams. And people would say, well, who's your favorite? Who, who, should, they, who should, they, should, should they have on the air? And I said, I don't care. I just want them to pick one and stay with them for about three years. Give them three years. By that time, there'll be enough turnover in other stations and, and people will be used to, will be accustomed to them and like them and get to know them and they'll do well. But, you know, I just uh, kind of threw it back at the station and say, you know, be patient, pick one. But, you know, they're, they're under such great pressure to um, try to goose the ratings and, and, and get out of third place um, so that they, you know, pull the trigger real quick and blow it up and start all over it. You've been covering media here in Cincinnati for well over, what, 30 years or so. What was, if you had to pick a time, a point in time in the last 30 years, what was like the heyday? When, where was the top of Cincinnati journalism in the past 30 years? What time period? I think the top of broadcasting was probably, um, and, and and probably journalism was, let's see, I started in 75, was, was in the 80s um, when... You had two newspapers. You had um, a morning newspaper in the evening, the Post and, and the Enquirer. You had, um, they were both doing quite well. So the, 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 both the Post and the Enquirer sent people to all the major sporting events. They sent them to the major political conventions. They sent their TV critic. And I went to the, uh, to the West Coast on the press tour. Uh, at that time, there was a, uh, uh, the FCC kept you could only have one AM and one FM. So like it was uh, Q102 and WKRC and, and there was WEZ 
which was which is now 92. So there was multiplicity of ownerships in radio, and you didn't have this big um, one company owns eight stations or seven stations, and you know each each station had an. I mean, WSAI had a news staff. Uh, Q102 had a, at least a news person in the morning. KRC had its own news staff. Uh, CKY was basically all news and talk. So they had a, a, a news staff that would have included Trisha Mackey back in the in the 80s. Um, um, so you had a lot of competition by the AMs and FMs and, and TV and print. I mean, I, I go back to the days when we would, uh, in, in the Enquirer, at 11 o'clock at night, we'd stop and watch Al Shadokati and, and log what stories he had and made sure we had them all. Or, you know, and if he had something we didn't have, we hustled to get it into the paper before our deadline at 11.45. Um, and there's plenty of times when I was suburban editor at the Enquirer that I would have to put together the suburban news page and, and get a multiplicity of stories from all the, the, the 12 townships, the 37 cities and villages that, that surrounded Cincinnati and Hamilton County. And not all, everything would fit everything. Sometimes a story or a brief might, might hold for two or three days. And then I'd wake up in the morning and hear it on TV and radio. And I thought, okay, I know where they got it because, because it sat in my computer queue for three days before I could find you know, it was a good story. I just didn't have room for it with the meetings and other stuff I had to get in. Well, well, thank you for that insight on local media. I, again, I've followed your work for a while and I really appreciate the service that you do for the community. Obviously I was, um, you know, honored to be a part of your send off to WNKU four years ago. Um, I added a little blurb in there about my time there. So, well, I thought, again, I thought that was another touchstone that was important. And I was surprised that that by that point I was at WVXU that that the other media in town didn't do that much with it. I mean, it was it was it was a it was a small but significant place in Cincinnati music, in local music, in Cincinnati broadcasting. And it really surprised me that that that. The TV, you know, the TV might have just been a quick blurb of packing up or something, but that they didn't do more with that. And one of the things I want to add real quick is that at one point I was early on in covering TV. Somebody came up to me and said, well, what do you have a degree in TV or broadcasting at, at a school? And I said, no, I, I was trained as a print journalist. I said, but most of the people that watch TV and listen to radio, they don't have a degree either. In, in it. So I feel that my job is to kind to translate what's going on, explain what's going on. Uh, and um, so that just to make the, 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 my reader at that point of the inquiry, but the audience a bit more smarter about what, what's going on, why, why things happen the way they do in broadcast. Moving on to your new book again, it's called Joe Nuxhall, the old left-hander and me. You talk a lot about Joe Nuxhall and the great stories that he told. What's one story that he told that, you know, is maybe maybe your favorite story? Uh, he told a couple of stories about Ted Kozuski. And um, but one, you know, Joe had a kind of a, a, a temper. And, and when he got mad or frustrated, then he lost his control on the mound. 
as well as over his emotions. And he'd walk the bases loaded and he was like two and oh on a batter. And Clue calls timeout and starts to walk towards the mound and and to try to settle Joe down and offer some encouragement. And, and Joe turns to him and waves him away saying, you go back and play first base. I'm doing the pitching. And Clue just glares at him and says, oh, yeah, well, when you're going to start? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Another one that I did that I found in my research, he was, uh, you know, he, he spent seven years in the minors before he got back to the Reds after pitching as a 15-year-old. And in the minors, he actually, in those seven years, had more losses and wins, more walks than strikeouts. It took him a long time to get his command of his pitches. And he went back after he was in radio, he went back to Muncie, Indiana, where he played in a class A team back in 1947, shortly after he got out of high school. And, and he told the group, the quote I found in the paper was, he told him, he says, I was about as wild as pitcher as you've ever seen. I remember one game where I struck out 14, walked 13, and had a no hitter going, but I was losing four to two, and it was only the seventh inning. <laughs> Man, what an accomplishment! Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I love stories about baseball, about the Reds. Who is the best baseball storyteller that you've ever talked to or listened to? I thought uh, probably Marty Brenneman was was uh, very good. Um, uh, J- Joe was very good. I mean, uh, uh, I the, the the here here here's what really drew me into doing this book. I, I grew up in Middletown and worked. And after, shortly after I got married, my wife and I moved from Cincinnati back up here to Fairfield because she was working for the Hamilton Journal and the Fairfield Echo. And, um, and the guy across the street about my age said, hey, Joe Nuxall speaking to the KSC tonight. Why don't we go? So we go to the KSC meeting in the basement of Sacred Heart Church. And it was January. And J- Nuxall starts out by talking about the Reds' chances for this season. And then somebody would say, Joe, tell us about the old days. And he went for about an hour and a half telling stories about his playing days of different players no notes, no break, no nothing. Just, just these marvelous stories, you know, about uh, Jim Maloney and Gaylord Perry getting into a, a spitball duel in uh, Candlestick Park one game. About the time that um, uh, Chicago Cubs batters bunted on him on wet grass in Wrigley Field, and he'd run down to field it and fell on his ass a couple of times. And <laughs> Until the bases got loaded, and then the, then Ernie Banks doubled, the next guy singled, and the next thing that happened is that Bernie Tebbets, the manager, came out to take him out of the ball game, and and he exploded. He uh, went and kicked the bats. He scattered the helmets. He tried to rip apart his glove and throw it in the stands, and just you know had a had a big meltdown in front of everybody. And then after he got in the clubhouse, Joe told me obviously years later that the. Um, they used to carry the batting helmets in a big, long, uh, oblong box, about five feet long, but only about 10 inches square. And he kicked the box and it got stuck to his cleats. And he's walking around the clubhouse with this big eight foot box <laughs> stuck to his. And he had to get the clubhouse boys to get it off his feet. And he said, you know, 
you know, that was one of the worst things that ever happened to him. And he said, I had this big temper tantrum and it didn't change a thing. I mean, he realized years later in life and, and he said that I think he won 135 games. He said, I could have been closer to 200 if I would have had contempt, had control of my temper and had, you know, matured as, as in terms of temperament. So, you know, he, he told all these great stories and and when I'd interview him subsequently, I'd I you know had an old cassette player, and I'd say, okay, hey, tell me about that time about Maloney and Gaylord Perry having a spitball duel, and I would record it, and it would never fit into whatever story I was doing. But then when he wrote his own book with the Greg Horde back in two thousand and four, and none of those stories are in the book, and I thought, and so three or four years ago, I thought I got all these great stories of his. I we need to have them preserved and prized and passed on to a next generation. And that's really the, the first full chapter of my book. And then after that, it's other aspects of Joe's career and some things. Uh, I, I thought a, a good friend of mine who was an AP reporter in town, I thought paid me the ultimate compliment. He said, you know, you said you're writing a Joe Nuxall book. And, and we, I thought, what don't we know about Joe Nuxall? He's been on the radio for 40 years or something. And, and he said, I read your book and I, I, you know, you had some wonderful stories in there, lots of stuff I didn't know. And it was a real, you know, he said it was the base, best baseball book he'd read this year. And I thought, okay, that's, that's high praise. I mean, he, he had written off the project before he opened it up thinking, what is there that, that uh, I don't already know about this man, but uh, learned plenty and laughed a lot. Wow. You know, Joe Nuxhall was an interesting character because not only was he on our radio for 40 years, but he was also from this area. He understood the importance of baseball in this area. He understood the importance of what he was doing on the radio to this area because baseball is so, um, you know, entrenched in our culture. And I think that's really what made Joe Nuxhall special because not only did he do that on the baseball side, but he was out in the community. He was being, he had the, um, the character, the Joe Knox Hall character. Fine. Yeah. And and the other thing is, is that he was very, we use the term now, very accessible, but he was. I mean, if you saw him walking down the street, you said hello to him, he'd say hello to you. He might stop and chat with him. You could interrupt his dinner. He didn't mind. I mean, he always had a minute to talk to baseball or say hi to a fan. And and several people told me that, um, that he, he had like a, photographic memory when it came to people and their names. Uh, one guy, he said he played golf. Uh, Joe Kelly was an assistant PR guy with the team in the 90s. And when they were in San Diego one time, Joe's uncle joined him for a, a game of golf. And like three or four years later, after long after Kelly had left the Reds, Joe runs into Kelly and say, hey, how you doing? He says, and how's your uncle so-and-so? And recalled the guy's name. Um, uh, and uh, his wife, Don Zeta, said, you know, he, people would come up to him and he said that he would remember their names, but also remember their wife's name and their kid's name or their or their friends. You know that he was so he was just so, so friendly, so earnest, so down to earth, uh, uh, just a regular Joe, even though he was, you know, a, a, a star baseball player for. 16 years and a baseball broadcaster who traveled the country and, um, and, and to him, he was just a regular Joe who he didn't see his job or his lot of life any different from somebody who worked at Fisher body or one of the paper plants. What made Marty and Joe so special as a team? 
Boy, if I could, you know, I think just because they got along so great and they didn't make up stuff, they didn't put put on airs, they didn't fabricate stuff saying, hey, the, the audience would love this. They would just they would just had a great knack for a great friendship that came across the airways and uh, they liked to needle each other. And that came through. Uh, and and I argue in the book that that when the Reds were really bad in the early 80s, after Morgan, Bench, Rose, Foster, Seaver, Eastwick, McEnany, everybody left, um, Kroger became a major sponsor on Reds TV. And the Kroger advertising director was encouraged by the Chicago agency that they had was, you know, get a player, get a player. And so, but uh, um, the the guy who was the head of Kroger advertising at the time knew that there weren't many players left. I mean, they were kind of down to Davy Concepcion, Danny Dreeson, Marty and Joe. So he went with Marty and Joe against their wishes. And, and so Marty and Joe became this great TV comedy team for about 10 years doing Kroger spots. And they were extremely well-crafted or the little buddy, the big guy and the little buddy. Um, um, and they became, it really elevated their celebrity status in, in this community as, as well to have, and part of the joy, I actually did a chapter on the Kroger spots, but in my research, I came across some uh, who used to be a, one of the producer on the commercials, gave me a jump drive with 35 Kroger commercials on it. And, and they're just, they're hilarious. And Kroger really nailed it. It was good for Kroger and it was good for Marty and Joe. As an avid Reds fan, this will be my last question. As an avid Reds fan, how do you see the team in the coming years? How do you see the future of the Reds based on what they did this year and the pieces that are coming back? Um, well, I, I guess I'm like Joe in the sense that I'm I'm a, always an optimist. I mean, with um, we'll look back on this club a couple of years from now and say, "Wow, Stevenson and India, two two breakthrough rookies." And if any of the, the the pitchers, particularly some of those we used in middle relief, come come through as either starters or solid middle or closer relief guys, we'll say, "Wow, that you know you, they really turned over some roster spots." Um, it was a terrific year for Joey Votto, um, but it's too many unknowns. I mean, what, what happens to Castellanos, what happens to Lorenzen, what happens to Tucker Barnhart? Uh, they'll probably lose Tucker as much as he's a good piece of the, a, a good guy in addition to a, a good player, golden glove, gold glove catcher. And really he could be the catcher three years from now when Votto retires or, and Stevenson moves to first base. Um, but so, but there's, um, I have hope. I just hope they don't go cheap on the bullpen like they did last year, which probably cost us the games we needed to, to get the pennant. Um, but you know, down on the minors, you've got Nicola Dolo and, and Hunter Green. So you got two stud arms that can come up. Um, Farmer was certainly a surprise. Uh, Barrero, if he's for real, you know, is he your shortstop or farmer? Or is maybe Barrero is your center fielder? And then you got Naquin and and Winker and and TJ Friedel and, and Senzel. So you got a pretty good outfield pieces to play with. You know, the, I think the big question is third base. Yeah. Oh, and I totally agree. Well, Keys, thank you so much. It's been a truly an honor to talk to you, to interview you, get your insight hear your stories. Um, so thank you again so much. 
John Kieswell. You can read his work on WVXU.org and you can buy his book out now, Joe Nuxhall, The Old Left-Hander and Me. Uh, you can find it, I assume, on Amazon and bookstores. It's on Amazon. It's at the bookstores, the Red Hall of Fame. And, and I'm selling them. Uh, my son and I created a website. My son, the NKU grad, um, created a, a website, tvkies, tvkies.com. Uh, any book that people order through there, I'll sign it uh, before I mail it back out. I'm a one-man operation. This is self-published. And if you're looking for my TV stories, a quick way to get them is the WVXU.org um, and, and TV keys uh, or WVXU.org slash TV keys will take you to the media page at the website. All right. Well, John, thank you so much. And we will, be, we will be right back. Thank you. Welcome back to the Clayton Castle podcast. I really hope you enjoyed that interview with John Keyswetter as much as I did talking to him. He has been a media reporter and personality in this town for over 35 years. And I was really excited and happy to get his insight on Cincinnati TV, the history of broadcasting here in Cincinnati, and to talk to him about his new book on Joe Nuxhall. I found the conversation quite enjoyable, and I thank John Keyswetter for coming on the Clayton Castle podcast. Now, I do want to tease next week's episode already. I will be joined by someone who inspires me so much. He is the former president of Northern Kentucky University. He is the current president emeritus of Northern Kentucky University. I am so honored and excited to be joined by Dr. James Votruba. That episode will drop next week, next Friday, so be sure to tune into that. There will be no new blog posts this week, so you get a week off from reading. Remember to tell your mom, tell your dad, tell everyone about the podcast and that you can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Be sure to like it, share it. Um, we're also on Facebook at the Clayton Castle Podcast page. Be sure to just, you know, Share it on your socials, and let's get the word spreading about these stories that we are telling together here on the podcast. Thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to you next week. <laughs>